0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kendall Deneen, and with me today is Dr. Kelly Ross, an Associate Professor of English Literature at Rider University. Today, we will be discussing Kelly's new book titled Slavery, Surveillance, and Genre in Antebellum United States Literature, which was published by Oxford University Press in February of this year. The book makes a fascinating intervention into our understanding of the emergence of crime and detective fiction, Finding the Roots of the Genre Amid Slave Narrative and ensla- Enslaved African-American Strategies of Resistance. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Ross. I'm just delighted to have you here today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. It's just a pleasure to be here.
0: Um, so to get us started, could you tell the listeners about yourself a bit and um, how did you come to the project of the book? Sure.
1: Um, my name is Kelly Ross. I'm from Virginia originally. I got my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and at Rider now, which is in New Jersey. Um, I came to the book in graduate school. I was really interested in Poe because of Toni Morrison's foundational scholarship and playing in the dark on whiteness and the literary imagination. And I read the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, and I was fascinated with it because it was published in 1838. Um, so three years before the Dupin tales, but it was really dealing with all the same sorts of tropes um, of, that would be part of detective fiction. So spying, um, solving mysteries, disguise, concealment, fugitivity, what Poe calls radiocination, you know, what we would call reasoning or deduction. Um, and I was just really interested in that also because the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym is Poe's most extended treatment of race. And so I was curious about that conjunction. And as I was researching that, I realized these tropes are really strongly associated with the control and surveillance of Black bodies in the antebellum period. And um, Simone Brown's work on racializing surveillance and dark surveillance have been really helpful to me in conceiving of the dynamics of watching from above and below in the antebellum slave system. Um, But I'm interested in how that manifests in literature. And so that was the germ of the project.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Um, If you could, could you talk a little bit about the difference between surveillance and surveillance? I'd actually never heard the term surveillance before, so um, that was great to learn about. And just in case any of our listeners are are like me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's a really useful term. So Steve Mann is a surveillance theorist, and he coined the term by replacing the French prefix sur, S-U-R, so above, with sous, S-O-U-S, below. So surveillance is watching from below. Surveillance is watching from above. And that has to do with the positions of power of the observer relative to the object of scrutiny. Um, And then Simone Brown adds, she brings race to the forefront of that. So she talks about the dialectic between racializing surveillance and dark surveillance. So um, racializing surveillance is the control and oppression of uh, Black people you know, or people of color um, through agents of state power, like um, slave patrollers, overseers, slave catchers, dark surveillance is the, it's, it's observing from below, but it's also in her formulation, it's um, using the experiential knowledge gained from the experience of plantation slavery to resist that racializing surveillance. Um, and I, in my introduction, I have an example that I think kind of makes it fairly clear, if I, I could just talk about that. So um, I show this or I include this illustration from an anti-slavery periodical, um, The Genius of Universal Emancipation. And in that woodcut image, there's um, a white member of Congress looking down from above as a of enslaved people is being marched in front of the U S Capitol building. And, um, so that you have the white supervisory gaze, but then the art, the artist has shown the enslaved people because of the way he's drawn the foreground, they look like they're literally underground. And the biggest, most prominent figure in the illustration is an enslaved man who has a recognizable eye. And he's looking up at the, um, Member of Congress, and he. The caption of the image is, "Behold, behold this cruel chain," and he's holding his manacles up. So, this suvalent, this enslaved man who's looking up at the white overseer, um, is directing the overseer's gaze to this symbol of slavery in front of this, um, you know, representation of U.S. liberty. So, the the suvalent is um, commanding attention from the white overseer.
0: Yeah, that illustration was very helpful. So I'm glad. <laughs> um, so one of the really, one of the things that I was like, so struck by when I was reading this book was wh- the way that you um, are sort of like, uh, undermining this, uh, I think sometimes assumption, assumption that I think I had that top down surveillance, particularly in the antebellum period was really like absolute. So if you could talk about how you kind of, I don't know, uh, take that apart a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, um definitely that I mean I I do I want to say, you know, of course surveillance was torturous and oppressive. So I don't mean to lessen the agony that, you know, the people who were living under that regime faced, but at the same time it wasn't absolute. It was pervasive but not absolute. Um And so in these narratives written by formerly enslaved people, they're showing all these examples of the ways that enslaved people are evading surveillance or resisting surveillance or using um, surveillance to negotiate better conditions for themselves. So um, they're just really showing that always enslaved people are watching surreptitiously Um, and they, you know, for example, William Grimes passes us white in order to evade a slave patrol. Um, Charles Ball, when he's escaping, he hides and eavesdrops on the slave catchers and gets information from them in order to help him make his escape. Um, but even just like on a minor day-to-day level, Grimes, um, he, he, he discovers that his overseer is stealing goods from other enslaved people and so when the overseer tries to whip grimes grimes says i'm gonna tell uh you know the the master that you're buying these stolen goods and so he's able to negotiate and like stop this whipping because of his watching from below so you know i just i think that um when we read these texts written from the perspective of, of enslaved people, it shows how complex the system was, that it was never perfect. It was never total. Um, and that it really highlights the agency of enslaved people, um, and the re- the resistance that they've practiced throughout this time period.
0: Yeah. it was wonderful to get to, to get that sort of idea injected into the way that I think about these texts Because I, I do. I think it's so important. Um, So, how can we understand slave narratives as a sort of precursor? I'm not sure that's the exact right word, but that's the word I'm going to go with, um, to like the detective or or crime novel.
1: Yeah. So, um, to answer that, I just want to say maybe a little bit about the genre of the slave narrative. So, um, 18th century and early 19th century examples of this genre, like Britton Hammond, Oladao, Aquiano, focus on religious experience. So, the conversion narrative of the enslaved person. Um, But in the 1820s and 1830s, which is the time period I'm really focusing on, the genre shifts and becomes much more about immediate abolition. And um, the narrators are talking about um, the dynamics of watching and surveillance in the slave system. And at this time period, there's a dramatic increase in the number of fugitive slaves, people fleeing slavery. Um, and actually in 1825, the first fugitive slave narrative is published, William Grimes's narrative. So when we have this development in the genre, um, fugitive slave narratives are really, they're writing about a crime because, uh, fugitive enslaved people are committing the crime according to the legal regime of the period, of stealing themselves away. So um, these fugitive slave narratives are really focused on the, they're they're focused on evading detection from the point of view of the criminal, you know, in quotes. Um, But what they're asking the reader to do is think about the true crime of slavery itself. Um, And so these narratives are focused on these tropes like, crime and punishment, um, evidence, fugitivity, pursuit, tracking clues, um, revelation, all these things that become central to detective fiction. So that's that's where I'm getting the <laughs> what you said, the precursor yep. idea from. Thank you.
0: Um, my next question was to ask you a little bit more about the differences between slave narratives published in the 1820s and 1830s um, and those that came after. Is there are there yes yeah, more sort of details that you'd like to give us about that? Because I just thought that was fascinating.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So the 1820s and 1830s narratives have not been as well studied, and part of that is because they're so idiosyncratic. They're um, they're published before the rise of institutional abolition. Um, so, like the, the American Anti-Slavery Society um, later in the 1830s publishes. Uh, a narrative, but until that narrative is published, these other narratives in the 1820s and 30s are kind of self published or published for the benefit of the narrator. So they're almost like a charity project to help individuals. So they aren't shaped by the pressures of an institutional agenda um, like the 1840s and onwards narratives are. Um, and that 1840s onwards narrative. Janine DeLombard has talked about how those are um, shaped by the idea of slavery on trial. Uh, So you have the enslavers are the perpetrators, the U.S. public is the jury, and the enslaved person is an eyewitness to the cruelty of slavery. So they're providing testimony, but they are not allowed to be the lawyers, right? So the white... Abolitionists are the lawyers who are presenting the case. Um, so that's a really passive role that the white dominated institution, uh, abolition institutions, are placing enslaved narrators into. But these earlier narratives that I'm interested in, <laughs> or more interested in, um, they are much more active. The narrators themselves are showing themselves to be very active agents who are watching and surveilling and. Um, they're not placing themselves in that eyewitness role. Um, so they emphasize black agency, as opposed to what Saidia Hartman calls scenes of subjection, um, which is the just spectating, white for white people to spectate and watch black people suffering. That's a later development, but that doesn't characterize these 1820s and 1830s narratives.
0: Thank you. Um, so you write that some slave narrative authors theorize surveillance as quote, constitutive of black subjectivity, um, end quote. And that's from page 46. Can, can you unpack this for us a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm building
1: on the work of scholars of black visuality, like Nicole Fleetwood and Jasmine Nicole Cobb. Um, Cobb talks about this among free black northerners, but, um, basically white supremacy and pro-slavery ideology specifically construct blackness as inherently visible. So whiteness is the power to look and blackness is always being looked at. Um, But in addition to revealing that, like I was saying before, black people were evading surveillance, um, some of, and, and, you know, practicing this strategic invisibility and surveilling, um, Some of the slave narrators that I look at, like Ball in particular, um, also discuss themselves as seeing subjects, um, not just objects of the white gaze. So in Ball's narrative, he talks about the importance of surveillance for his escape, but he also uh, depicts himself as a flinner, so just leisurely looking around, observing the world. And he's showing himself, it's his looking isn't just instrumental, it's um, showing that he has this rich inner life. And then in another example, he's talking about how he and the other enslaved people at this um, plantation are watching the ludicrous actions of the white family and laughing at them, as though they're at a theater and the, the enslaved people are the audience. So he's showing that he has this critical black gaze. Um, he's a spectator there. So, you know, he's, that's, he's making sure that his subjectivity is um, central, not just his, um, you know, resistance to, but also his like ability to look back.
0: So in chapter two, you bring together Ball's narrative and and Edgar Allan Poe's detective uh, character. Did you say Dupin? Dupin? I say Dupin. (laughs) I've heard different things. (laughs) Um, So what sort of intervention are you making in this chapter in terms of genre?
1: Yeah, um, genre traditionally has been understood as a hierarchical sorting mechanism. So, you know, authoritarian, prescriptive, putting things in categories where things belong. And Derrida talks about that as the law of genre. Um, I'm less interested in that way of thinking about genre, but I am really interested in recent genre theory that is um, looking at genre as um, a way of triangulating the relationships among authors, texts, and readers and bringing the social dimension in rather than just focusing on individual authors. Um, And so in this newer theory of genre, genre is dynamic and historically contingent. And so in the book as a whole, I'm tracking the way that the functions of genre change over time and in response to different institutions and different social pressures, Um, And in the chapter you mentioned, specifically, I'm looking at the early development of US detective fiction. Um, And basically, I'm showing how similar textual procedures circulate um, among and perform different functions in different people's narratives. So Charles Ball that I've mentioned a couple of times now, um, he has in his 1836 narrative, there's an embedded murder mystery that he solves using surveillance. And that comes before Poe's Dupin tales, so I'm kind of thinking like, what happens when we start the history of the genre of detective fiction with Ball instead of Poe? Um, and even though their purposes are dramatically different, and and the functions that these uh, tropes and textual procedures fulfill for these authors are very different, um, we can compare them and think about like what's what are they accomplishing? What's happening in these texts? So, the stakes of Ball's um, narrative his his ability to solve this mystery are life and death. He would be killed if he and tortured if he didn't solve the mystery. Um, whereas for Japan it's p- puzzle games. You know that's kind of like what detective fiction generally is like a puzzle. Um, and Ball doesn't get any credit for solving the mystery. He just avoids punishment. So whereas Critics have said the classical detective story is about justice and restoring social order. Ball's narrative shows, emphasizes the injustice in the slave South.
0: Thank you. Um, So you write that. Post uh, post Tales of of Detection, excuse me, recognize the potency of the surveillance revealed in stories of fugitive slaves and accounts of slave insurrections, but they depict this watching from below as a menace to be constrained by superior white surveillance. Um, I just wanted to take us here because I think this is a great way of getting into a bit more detail about what the, I mean, obviously they're very different, right? What we're talking about, but um, this to me was like a very powerful difference that I I wanted to be able to touch on. So if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Sure. Um yeah, so the specifically like how it works in the Dupin tales. Yeah.
0: Or yeah. you know in in uh, yeah, in Dupin or if there's another Poe story that you'd rather talk about, I'm totally No. Well. <laughs> no, I just wanted to
1: make sure I understood. Yeah, so um the first Dupin tale, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, I, I spoiler alert, but um it's um there, it's about an orangutan who kills two white women. And Lyndon Barrett and other critics have pointed out that this for the white antebellum reader, the orangutan would be an Africanist presence in the story. So basically, Poe is activating the racist ideology that associates African Americans and apes. And he's writing a story about white fears of slave rebellion and fugitive enslaved people. Um, and in this story, the white, there's a white sailor who kidnaps the orangutan um, brings it back to the metropole. He's going to sell it, but he, the orangutan has been injured on the, on the voyage. So he has to, he, he keeps it in captivity until it's healed. And, um, throughout all of this, Poe is using the vocabulary that's associated with racializing surveillance. So he's using terms like master and fugitive and the master whips the orangutan. So he's really activating, you know, this, he's he's making it clear that this is an analog of U.S. slave rebellion, U.S. fugitive slaves. Um, but what's kind of strange is that um, the story doesn't focus on dupin capturing the murderer you know the orangutan just runs free and is eventually captured but that happens after the rest of the story um and the the narrator emphasizes that the orangutan has learned he's been surveilling the white sailor through a keyhole and he's watching him Um, shave, and that's how he learns to use a razor, and that's what he uses to kill the white women. So the orangutan is a figure of surveillance, but instead of being um, a contest between um, Dupin, the white man, and this figure of Africanism, this Africanist presence, the story um, just pushes that to the side and redirects the contest and makes it a contest between two white men instead. So Poe goes after the owner, the white sailor, the one who has captured the orangutan. And um, the Dupin tracks down the white sailor by placing an ad in the newspaper that looks exactly like the ads that jailers in the US would place when they have captured a, a fugitive enslaved person and they're telling the owner, we've captured this person, come and claim possession. Um, So basically, Dupin is an enslaver catcher rather than a slave catcher. And whereas, you know, in in the slave narratives that I was talking about, surveillance is liberatory and resistant. Um, In this story, the surveillance is just not dealt with, it's just pushed to the side. And the story becomes a story about this contest between two white men and Dupin is the superior intelligence that wins this battle by, but he's using the methods of slave catching to win the battle.
0: It's just so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So you examine the dialectical relationship between surveillance and surveillance. And in chapter three, um, sort of how this relationship breaks down in narratives of enslaved rebellion, specifically. So, what happens to this racialized dialectical relationship in the narratives that you examine in this in this chapter?
1: Um, yeah. So, again, this goes back to Fleetwood and Cobb and Michael Cheney, um, scholars of black visuality, and and in this chapter in particular, bell hooks is really important for me. Um, so, she theorizes white invisibility, um, and she talks about how in white supremacists, white supremacist society. Um, white people feel safely invisible to the gaze. They don't they don't believe that they're being looked at by black people. Um, and that's in this chapter, that's really the dynamics that I'm looking at. So when um, how this I use the phrase white oversight to talk about this. Um, so basically white oversight as in the supervisory position that white people assume for themselves. Um, but also oversight as in not seeing, overlooking. Um, so they overlook the fact that they're they're also the objects of scrutiny. Um, and in these narratives of revolt and rebellion, that illusion of invisibility, that illusion of white oversight is punctured. And um, white people realize that they are also the objects of the gaze. Um so when that happens, the power structure is upended and, in, and the dialectic that I've been talking about, racializing surveillance and dark surveillance, the, that dialectic gets kind of messy and complex. And so you have, instead of white surveillance, you have white surveillance and you have black surveillance, um, or sometimes you have the same person occupying multiple positions which just emphasizes that these are all contingent and um, not essential to a racial identity. Um, So I start off by analyzing the confessions of Nat Turner by Thomas R. Gray. And in Turner's confession, he emphasizes the dynamics of surveillance and surveillance. And he talks about himself as having superior sight. And he says it was his first, the first experience he had of being placed over and over sorry, under an overseer um, that prompts him to commit to violent rebellion. Um, so after Turner's confession, Gray, we've seen this rebellion, we've seen the upending of this power structure, and then Gray appends a description of white fugitivity. Um, and so all the, he talks about all the victims of the rebellion, the white victims of the rebellion, and he describes them, in the ways that, um, black fugitives are usually described. So they're hiding in the swamps, they're, um, hiding in the closet, observing, eavesdropping, um, you know, they're in this position that is normally assigned to dark surveillance. Um, so of course the, white supremacist power structure quickly represses this. And in fact, after the rebellion, enacts even more oppressive legislation um, to control black mobility. But I think the confessions really shows that these positions are contingent. And so it challenges pro-slavery ideology that wants to claim that they're essential you know, that they're inherent in whiteness, that in, whiteness is this superior visuality.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how the breakdown of this, like a racialized sort of relationship, it can actually affect a text like structure. It's sort of. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um, so the two, after I talk about the confessions, I look at two fictional narratives that are based on historical events and um I'm arguing that the authority to narrate historical events is stabilized by white oversight. And so when these white narrators lose this illusion of white oversight, they no longer have the authority or the credibility to reconstruct past events. And because of that, the whole text, the narrative structure breaks down and dissolves in various ways. So um, in Melville's Benito Sereno, Um, we have Amasa Delano, the white captain starts out assuming that he's invisible. He's a white surveillance, invisible to the black people on the ship. um, And he's safe in his privileged position, but the, you know, finally eventually he realizes that he's been the object of scrutiny the whole time. And Babo is a black surveillance the whole time. Um, And he's a black overseer. And so when that, recognition happens melville shifts from the close third person narrator who's been tracking delano the, the that that section just ends kind of abruptly and melville shifts to a legal de- deposition um, but it's just extracts from a legal deposition and it's not narrativized at all and so there's no way to solve the mystery because there's just all these fragments you know that are left hanging there and the text just doesn't provide a satisfactory ending or a satisfactory solution
0: yeah, I thought that was so interesting it makes me want to go back and read the <laughs> read the text I haven't read it since my first year uh, of grad school, so I owe it a, a reread anyways. But yeah, I, I mean, that.
1: it's a fantastic. I think it rewards multiple rereadings. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, so we're going to dive into your fourth chapter, which um, I work with a lot of speculative fiction. So I was like, as soon as I saw the title of the chapter, I got really excited because <laughs> I'm a huge oh, nerd. But um, <laughs> um, So if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the chapter title is speculation fiction. So could you kind of talk us through what you mean by that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'm going back to the original meaning of speculation there. Um, It comes from the Latin "speculari," which means to spy out, to observe. And so, uh, you know, the early meaning of speculation was basically spying, observing, watching. Um, And this ocular meaning is really important for black women in particular, because they're in this hyper visible position because they're over surveilled, especially. women, enslaved women who worked as domestics, right? They're, they're constantly under surveillance. Um, So I'm looking in this chapter at two narratives by formerly enslaved women, Harriet Jacobs's incidents in the life of a slave girl and the bond woman's narrative by Hannah Crafts. And I'm arguing that these two texts depict black women spying out information. So they're speculating in that original early sense of watching and observing. And then they use the information that they're gaining from that speculation to protect themselves and their loved ones. Um, And then that's where the more common meaning of speculation, especially for this antebellum time period comes in where, you know, speculation means to profit from, you know, an investment in something risky that then makes money rises in value. And so you make money. And that is the fuel that's driving the Atlantic slave trade and then the US domestic slave trade, and it's tearing black families apart. It's um, destroying enslaved people's lives by forcing them to march across the interior of the United States to these territories that have been annexed and where the cotton kingdom is developing. Um, And so in order to try and protect themselves from this slave speculation, the protagonists of these two texts are practicing what I call enslaved speculation by spying out information and trying to use that to negotiate the conditions of their lives.
0: I'm wondering if you could, I feel like this is a big question, but because <laughs> it's a whole chapter basically, but um, if you could sort of walk us through a couple of specific examples from either one of the texts, whatever you prefer. Sure.
1: Yeah. Um uh, the Bondswoman's narrative by Crafts, H- Hannah is the protagonist of that. She's an enslaved woman. Um, and at the beginning of the narrative, Crafts really emphasizes Hannah's extraordinary visual abilities. Um, so she's specu- she's um, able to spy out secret information, but she's also, like I was saying with Ball, she talks a lot about Hannah's subjectivity her visual subjectivity and that she's imaginative and um you know spends time speculating about this artwork that she sees like imagining futures for the people Um, and so she's speculating in that sense where she's using she's spying she's gathering secret information and then sharing the secrets that she discovers with women that she's trying to she hopes they'll protect her um, and she's trying to establish intimacy with them in order to encourage them to buy her and rescue her from uh, the worst you know, type of enslavement um, and treat her well. So she's basically using the spying to engage in the speculation that slave speculators engaged in because she's negotiating the conditions of her sale um, and trying to negotiate her sale to a sympathetic owner. Um, but she's not trying to make a profit. She's just trying to protect herself. And then finally, she, her, her attempts to do this with various women become less and less successful. And then ultimately just completely untenable. She has this really horrific owner who, you know, she reaches a point where she can't work with her. She can't, um, be intimate with her at all anymore. So she escapes or she decides to escape. And after she makes her escape attempt, she Hannah Crafts, the author, um, depicts Hannah, the protagonist, as basically having this fantastic wish-fulfillment happy ending where she um, reunites with all these people she lost during her enslavement, and she reunites with her long-lost mother, and it's just this over-the-top happy ending, and so I'm arguing there that Hannah Crafts, the author, is doing what we would call more like the speculative fiction, right, the imaginative, conjectural, imagining an alternate future. Um, So there's all these types of speculation happening in the text at various levels. And I think they're all working together in this really fascinating way that um, kind of broadens out from the type of surveillance that I've been talking about in the earlier chapters.
0: Yeah, I really, I mean, I appreciated the whole book, but this chapter in particular, I was like, "Wow, this is really going to change the way that I read a lot of these things that I'm reading." I was kind of mad actually that I didn't read it before I I taught a couple of like speculative neo slave narratives, and I was like, "Oh, oh yeah, so great, um, yeah, thinking about them this way." But thank you, going forward, I'll be able to do
1: that. <laughs> oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you. <laughs>
0: um, so, you make a really great point about privacy. Um, and I was thinking about this a lot because I think of privacy as like you know relief from scrutiny and surveillance. Mm-hmm. But that's not always the case, and particularly in the case of these enslaved Black women whose texts you're you're working with here, uh, you make a point that actually privacy has the potential to make one less safe rather than more safe. And I was wondering if you could if you could just speak to that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, privacy is like you said generally a a, a really common term with surveillance studies, um, but Feminist surveillance theorists and um, scholars like Imani Perry have really pointed out that that's a privilege. Privacy is a privilege of whiteness. Um, And people of color have long been denied the right to privacy. So, if we're going to think about race and surveillance, we really need to rethink that privacy as a key term. Um, And Harriet Jacobs, in incidents, she's pointing this out back in 1861, saying, You know, she's addressing her white woman readership and saying their homes are shielded by US laws, but, um, and that protects them from assault. But Black women are not protected in that same way. They don't have a home that protects them. So for enslaved women, like Jacobs, uh, Linda Brent, and the narrative, um, they are very vulnerable to sexual assault. And so privacy can just be a way for men to. Dominate women, assault women, free from public scrutiny, Um, and so Harriet Jacobs, well, Linda Brent (laughs) keeps. um, She she realizes she has to leverage surveillance instead of evading surveillance. So when Doctor Flint, um, her enslaver, is he's trying to assault her, she um, wants to make sure that there are other people. She keeps in sight of other people to use public scrutiny to prevent Flint from, um, assaulting her in private. Does that
0: answer that question? Okay. (laughs) I thought it was such a, a a nice complication of what seems like maybe an easy solution where these Mm. people are actually saying, well, it's, it's not quite that simple. Right. And I thought that was really, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the last section of the book, you bring our attention to the murder of George Floyd and to Darnella Frazier, who was the person who recorded uh, Floyd's murder very very bravely. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk about, because I found this move really powerful, um, talk about sort of why you bring us from the antebellum period into our very, very recent past.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, racializing surveillance continues to harm people of color. Um, The technologies have changed, but the continuity of oppression and control is clear. And I think Frazier's example demonstrates that, but it also demonstrates that there's a continuity of resistance. Um, And so Frazier and other bystanders who filmed police videos and released their videos are acting as surveillance. Um, They're using digital technology instead of print technology, but they're exposing the brutality and corruption of powerful state agents. Um, And whereas people like Charles Ball and Frederick Douglass and Harriet Jacobs were using print technology to do that same thing. Um, But one thing, I guess, just to complicate that again, like we were just saying, um, there's a problem of making surveillance visible, especially for bystanders of color, um, surveillance of color. So, in order to mobilize support and affect change and bring awareness, um, Fraser released, she released her video and, you know, people release these videos and they bring awareness to people who are privileged to live in neighborhoods that aren't over policed and over surveilled. And so they can, these people who've had this privilege, see this evidence and can say like, yes, okay, I understand this is what's happening. But, the people who release these videos, the surveillance by making themselves visible, make themselves vulnerable as well. And so um, Fraser and others have talked about how they've been traumatized, they've received death threats. And this was also a problem for fugitive enslaved people who shared their stories publicly, like Ball and uh, Douglas and Jacobs, you know, they often had to flee the United States to Canada or Great Britain to evade The slave catchers um, who are after them. So there's this problem of, you know, you have to you're sharing this information, you're sharing this surveillance in order to make change, but it brings vulnerability and harm to the people who are doing this work. Um, So I think that's kind of the continuity that I'm trying to draw. That there's always been resistance, um, but the resistance takes a great deal of courage and bravery. Just as you said, you know, Frazier was acting very courageously and was honored for that with the Pulitzer Prize. Um, but I hope my book is demonstrating that surveillance is powerful and it's challenging the racializing surveillance that still continues to operate in our society.
0: Thank you. Um, so I always like to finish up an episode by asking if there's anything you're working on now that you'd like to share. Um,
1: Sure. Yeah, I I am working on two articles that grew out of this research, but didn't fit into the book. So the first one is about Isaac Hopper's Tales of Oppression, which is um, a serial uh, column that was that ran in the National Anti-Slavery Standard beginning in 1840. And there's 79 narratives of basically his work. He was a white Quaker um, abolitionist, and he was working as a, um, a vigilance committee basically in the 1800s to 1830s. Um, and so I'm really interested in that narrative and how that might, you know, continue to emphasize a different type of slave narrative or like emphasize different aspects of the slave narrative genre that we don't see in these later narratives. So similar to the argument I make in chapter one of the book, Um, and then I'm also working on an essay about Alan Pinkerton, um, who founded the Pinkerton detective agency, but, um, I don't know if it's as well known that he was also an abolitionist. And so, um, really, and he was, a, he protected Lincoln during the civil war. He did counterintelligence for the union army. Um, so I think it's, you know, interesting to think about like this Pinkerton, Pinkerton detective agency as a tool of repression, and yet his politics, You wouldn't expect that given these more progressive politics that we see earlier in the century. Um, And then I I am working on a second book, but it's a long way off. (laughs) But that will be about the U.S.-Mexico War um, and how that shows up in in literature of the 1840s and
0: 50s. It sounds like you are very busy. I'm really looking forward to reading. uh, Yeah, what you come up with next, and and uh, the Pinkerton thing that like shocks me. Honestly, yeah, really. More about it. Yeah, (laughs) I know.
1: I I still don't know what to make of it, but that's that's. I'm excited to find out.
0: Well, thank you again so much for your time, Dr. Ross. This has been just lovely. Um, Oh, thank you.
1: This has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it.